Chapter Twenty One of Alice Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeanie. Alice Adams by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Twenty One. That morning and noon had been warm, though the stirrings of a feeble breeze made weather not flagrantly intemperate. But at about three o'clock in the afternoon there came out of the southwest a heat like an affliction sent upon an accursed people, and the air was soon dead of it. Dripping negro ditch-diggers whooped with satires praising hell and hot weather, as the tossing shovels flickered up to the street-level, where sluggish male pedestrians carried coats upon hot arms and fanned themselves with straw hats, or, remaining covered, wore soaked handkerchiefs between scalp and straw. Clerks drooped in silent big department stores. Stenographers in offices kept as close to electric fans as the intervening bulk of their employers would let them. Guests in hotels left the lobbies and went to lie unclad upon their beds, while in hospitals the patients murmured querulously against the heat, and perhaps against some noisy motorist who strove to feel the air by splitting it, not troubled by any foreboding that he, too, that hour next week, might need quiet near a hospital. The hot spell was a true spell, one upon men's spirits, for it was so hot that in suburban outskirts golfers crept slowly back over the low undulations of their clublands, abandoning their matches and returning to shelter. Even on such a day sizzling work had to be done, as in winter. There were glowing furnaces to be stoked, liquid metals to be poured, but such tasks found seasoned men standing to them, and in all the city probably no brave soul challenged the heat more gamely than Mrs. Adams did when, in a corner of her small and fiery kitchen, where all day long her hired African immune cooked fiercely, she pressed her husband's evening clothes with a hot iron. No doubt she risked her life, but she risked it cheerfully in so good and necessary a service for him. She would have given her life for him at any time, and both his and her own for her children. Unconscious of her own heroism, she was surprised to find herself rather faint when she finished her ironing. However, she took heart to believe that the clothes looked better, in spite of one or two scorched places, and she carried them upstairs to her husband's room, before increasing blindness forced her to grope for the nearest chair. Then, trying to rise and walk without having sufficiently recovered, she had to sit down again. But after a little while she was able to get to her feet, and, keeping her hand against the wall, moved successfully to the door of her own room. Here she wavered might have gone down, had she not been stimulated by the thought of how much depended upon her. She made a final great effort, and floundered across the room to her bureau, where she kept some simple restoratives. They served her need, or her faith in them did, and she returned to her work. She went down the stairs, keeping a still tremulous hand upon the rail, but she smiled brightly when Alice looked up from below, where the woodwork was again being tormented with superfluous attentions. "'Alice, don't,' her mother said, commiseratingly. You did all of that this morning, and it looks lovely. What's the use of wearing yourself out on it? You ought to be lying down so as to look fresh for to-night. Hadn't you better lie down yourself? the daughter returned. Are you ill, Mama? Certainly not. What in the world makes you think so? You look pretty pale, Alice said, and sighed heavily. It makes me ashamed having you work so hard for me. How foolish! I think it's fun getting ready to entertain a little again, like this. I only wish it hadn't turned so hot. I'm afraid your poor father will suffer. His things are pretty heavy, I noticed. Well, it'll do him good to bear something for style's sake this once, anyhow. She laughed, and coming to Alice, bent down and kissed her. Dearie, she said tenderly, wouldn't you please slip upstairs now and take just a teeny nap to please your mother? 
but Alice responded only by moving her head slowly in token of refusal. Do, Mrs. Adams urged. You don't want to look worn out, do you? I'll look all right, Alice said, huskily. Do you like the way I've arranged the furniture now? I've tried all different ways. It's lovely, her mother said, admiringly. I thought the last way you had it was pretty, too, but you know best. I never knew anybody with so much taste. If you'd only just quit now and take a little rest. There'd hardly be time, even if I wanted to. It's after five. But I couldn't, really I couldn't. How do you think we can manage about Walter, to see that he wears his evening things, I mean? Mrs. Adams pondered. I'm afraid he'll make a lot of objections on account of the weather and everything. I wish we had had a chance to tell him last night or this morning. I'd have telephoned to him this afternoon, except— well, I scarcely like to call him up at that place, since your father— No, of course not, Mama. If Walter gets home late, Mrs. Adams went on, I'll just slip out and speak to him, in case Mr. Russell's here before he comes. I'll just tell him he's got to hurry and get his things on. Maybe he won't come home to dinner, Alice suggested, rather hopefully. Sometimes he doesn't. No, I think he'll be here. When he doesn't come, he usually telephones by this time to say not to wait for him. He's very thoughtful about that. Well, it really is getting late. I must go and tell her she ought to be preparing her fillet. Dearie, do rest a little. You'd much better do that yourself, Alice called after her. But Mrs. Adams shook her head cheerily, not pausing on her way to the fiery kitchen. Alice continued her useless labors for a time, then carried her bucket to the head of the cellar stairway, where she left it upon the top step, and, closing the door, returned to the living-room. Again she changed the position of the old plush rocking-chairs, moving them into the corners where she thought they might be least noticeable and, while thus engaged, she was startled by a loud ringing of the doorbell. For a moment her face was panic-stricken, and she stood staring. Then she realized that Russell would not arrive for another hour at the earliest, and, recovering her equipoise, went to the door. Waiting there, in a languid attitude, was a young colored woman with a small bundle under her arm and something malleable in her mouth. Listen, she said, you folks expectin' a colored lady? No, said Alice, especially not at the front door. Listen, the colored woman said again. Listen, say, listen, ain't they another colored lady already here by the day? Listen, ain't Miss Malena Burns here by the day this evening? Say, listen, this is the number house she give me. Are you the waitress? Alice asked, dismally. Yes, am if Malena here. Malena is here, Alice said, and hesitated. But she decided not to send the waitress to the back door. It might be a risk. She let her in. What's your name? Me. I'm named Gertrude, Miss Gertrude Colomus. Did you bring a cap and apron? Gertrude took the little bundle from under her arm. Yes, am I'm all fixed. I've already set the table, Alice said. I'll show you what we want done. She led the way to the dining-room, and, after offering some instruction there, received by Gertrude with languor and a slowly moving jaw, she took her into the kitchen where the cap and apron were put on. The effect was not fortunate. Gertrude's eyes were noticeably bloodshot, an affliction made more apparent by the white cap, and Alice drew her mother apart, whispering anxiously, Do you suppose it's too late to get someone else? "'I'm afraid it is,' Mrs. Adams said. "'Melena says it was hard enough to get her. "'You have to pay them so much that they only work when they feel like it. "'Mama, could you ask her to wear her cap straighter? "'Every time she moves her head she gets it to one side, "'and her skirt's too long behind and too short in front, "'and, oh, I've never seen such feet!' "'Alice laughed desolately. "'And she must quit that terrible chewing. "'Never mind, I'll get to work with her. "'I'll straighten her out all I can, dearie. "'Don't worry.' "'Mrs. Adams patted her daughter's shoulder encouragingly.' "'Now, you can't do another thing, and if you don't run and begin dressing, you won't be ready. "'It'll only take me a minute to dress myself, and I'll be down long before you will. "'Run, darling. I'll look after everything.' Alice nodded vaguely, went up to her room, and, after only a moment with her mirror, brought from her closet the dress of white organdy she had worn the night when she met Russell for the first time. 
She laid it carefully upon her bed and began to make ready to put it on. Her mother came in half an hour later to fasten her. "'I'm all dressed,' Mrs. Adams said briskly. "'Of course it doesn't matter. He won't know what the rest of us even look like. How could he? I know I'm an old sight, but all I want is to look respectable. Do I?' "'You look like the best woman in the world, that's all,' Alice said, with a little gulp. Her mother laughed and gave her a final scrutiny. "'You might use just a tiny bit more colour, dearie. I'm afraid the excitement's made you a little pale. And you must brighten up. There's a sort of a look in your eyes as if you'd gotten into a trance and couldn't get out. You've had it all day. I must run. Your father wants me to help him with his studs. Walter hasn't come yet, but I'll look after him. Don't worry. And you'd better hurry, dearie, if you're going to take any time fixing the flowers on the table.' She departed while Alice sat at the mirror again to follow her advice concerning a tiny bit more colour. Before she had finished, her father knocked at the door, and, when she responded, came in. He was dressed in the clothes his wife had pressed, but he had lost substantially in weight since they were made for him. No one would have thought that they had been pressed. They hung from him voluminously, seemed to be the clothes of a larger man. "'Your mother's gone downstairs,' he said, in a voice of distress. "'One of the buttonholes in my shirt is too large, and I can't keep the dang thing fastened. I don't know what to do about it. I only got one other white shirt, and it's kind of ruined. I tried it before I did this one.' Do you suppose you could do anything? I'll see, she said. My collar's got a frayed edge, he complained, as she examined his troublesome shirt. It's a good deal like wearing a saw, but I expect it'll wilt down flat pretty soon and not bother me long. I'm liable to wilt down flat myself, I expect. I don't know as I remember any such hot night in the last ten or twelve years. He lifted his head and sniffed the flaccid air, which was laden with a heavy odor. My, but that smell is pretty strong, he said. Stand still, please, Papa, Alice begged him. I can't see what's the matter if you move around. How absurd you are about your old glue smell, Papa. There isn't a vestige of it, of course. I didn't mean glue, he informed her. I mean cabbage. Is that fashionable now, to have cabbage when there's company for dinner? That isn't cabbage, Papa. It's Brussels sprouts. Oh, is it? I don't mind it much, because it keeps that glue smell off me, but it's fairly strong. I expect you don't notice it so much, because you've been in the house with it all along, and got used to it while it was growing. It is pretty dreadful, Alice said. Are all the windows open downstairs? I'll go down and see, if you'll just fix that hole up for me. I'm afraid I can't, she said, not unless you take your shirt off and bring it to me. I'll have to sew the hole smaller. Oh, well, I'll go ask your mother to— No, said Alice. She's got everything on her hands. Run and take it off. Hurry, Papa. I've got to arrange the flowers on the table before he comes. He went away and came back presently, half undressed, bringing the shirt. There's one comfort, he remarked, pensively, as she worked. I've got that collar off for a while. I wish I could go to table like this. I could stand it a good deal better. Do you seem to be making any headway with the dang thing? I think probably I can— Downstairs the doorbell rang, and Alice's arms jerked with the shock. Golly, her father said, did you stick your finger with that fool needle? She gave him a blank stare. He's come. She was not mistaken, for upon the little veranda Russell stood facing the closed door at last. However, it remained closed for a considerable time after he rang. Inside the house the warning summons of the bell was immediately followed by another sound, audible to Alice and her father as a crash preceding a series of muffled falls. Then came a distant voice, bitter in complaint. "'Oh, Lord!' said Adams. "'What's that?' Alice went to the top of the front stairs, and her mother appeared in the hall below. Mamma, Mrs. Adams looked up. "'It's all right,' she said, in a loud whisper. Gertrude fell down the cellar stairs. Somebody left a bucket there, and— she was interrupted by a gasp from Alice, and hastened to reassure her. "'Don't worry, dearie. She may limp a little, but—' Adams leaned over the banisters. "'Did she break anything?' he asked. "'Hush!' 
his wife whispered. No, she seems upset and angry about it more than anything else, but she's rubbing herself, and she'll be all right in time to bring the little sandwiches. Alice, those flowers. I know, Mama, but— Hurry, Mrs. Adams warned her. Both of you hurry. I must let him in. She turned to the door, smiling cordially, even before she opened it. Do come right in, Mr. Russell, she said, loudly, lifting her voice for additional warning to those above. I'm so glad to receive you informally this way, in our own little home. There's a hat-rack here under the stairway, she continued, as Russell, murmuring some response, came into the hall. I'm afraid you'll think it's almost too informal, my coming to the door, but unfortunately our housemaid's just had a little accident. Oh, nothing to mention. I just thought we'd better not keep you waiting any longer. Will you step into our living-room, please? She led the way between the two small columns, and seated herself in one of the plush rocking-chairs, selecting it because Alice had pointed out that the chairs themselves were less noticeable when they had people sitting in them. "'Do sit down, Mr. Russell. It's so very warm. It's really quite a trial just to stand up.' "'Thank you,' he said, as he took a seat. "'Yes, it is quite warm.' And this seemed to be the extent of his responsiveness for the moment. He was grave, rather pale, and Mrs. Adams's impression of him, as she formed it then, was of a distinguished-looking young man, really elegant in the best sense of the word, but timid and formal when he first meets you. She beamed upon him, and used with everything she said a continuous accompaniment of laughter, meaningless except that it was meant to convey cordiality. "'Of course we do have a great deal of warm weather,' she informed him. "'I'm glad it's so much cooler in the house than it is outdoors.' "'Yes,' he said, "'it is pleasanter indoors.' and, stopping with this single untruth, he permitted himself the briefest glance about the room. Then his eyes returned to his smiling hostess. "'Most people make a great fuss about hot weather,' she said. "'The only person I know who doesn't mind the heat the way other people do is Alice. She always seems as cool as if we had a breeze blowing, no matter how hot it is. But then she's so amiable she never minds anything. It's just her character. She's always been that way since she was a little child, always the same to everybody, high and low.' I think character's the most important thing in the world, after all, don't you, Mr. Russell?" "'Yes,' he said, solemnly, and touched his bedewed white forehead with a handkerchief. "'Indeed it is,' she agreed with herself, never failing to continue her murmur of laughter. "'That's what I've always told Alice, but she never sees anything good in herself, and she just laughs at me when I praise her. She sees good in everybody else in the world, no matter how unworthy they are, or how they behave toward her, but she always underestimates herself.' From the time she was a little child she was always that way. When some other little girl would behave selfishly or meanly toward her, do you think she'd come and tell me? Never a word to anybody. The little thing was too proud. She was the same way about school. The teacher had to tell me when she took a prize. She'd bring it home and keep it in her room without a word about it to her father and mother. Now Walter was just the other way. Walter would— But here Mrs. Adams checked herself, though she increased the volume of her laughter. How silly of me! she exclaimed. I expect you know how mothers are, though, Mr. Russell. Give us a chance, and we'll talk all about our children forever. Alice would feel terribly if she knew how I've been going on about her to you." In this Mrs. Adams was right, though she did not herself suspect it, and upon an almost inaudible word or two from him she went on with her topic. Of course my excuse is that few mothers have a daughter like Alice. I suppose we all think the same way about our children, but some of us must be right when we feel we've got the best. Don't you think so? Yes. Yes, indeed. I'm sure I am, she laughed. I'll let the others speak for themselves. She paused reflectively. No, I think a mother knows when she's got a treasure in her family. If she hasn't got one, she'll pretend she has, maybe, but if she has, she knows it. I certainly know I have. She's always been what people call the joy of the household, always cheerful no matter what went wrong, and always ready to smooth things over with some bright, witty saying. 
You must be sure not to tell her we've had this little chat about her. She'll just be furious with me. But she is such a dear child. You won't tell her, will you?" No, he said, and again applied the handkerchief to his forehead for an instant. No, I'll— He paused and finished lamely. I'll not tell her. Thus reassured, Mrs. Adams set before him some details of her daughter's popularity at sixteen, dwelling upon Alice's impartiality among her young suitors. She never could bear to hurt their feelings, and always treated all of them just alike. About half a dozen of them were just bound to marry her. Naturally her father and I considered any such idea ridiculous. She was too young, of course. Thus the mother went on with her biographical sketches, while the pale young man sat facing her under the hard overhead light of a white globe, set to the ceiling, and listened without interrupting. She was glad to have the chance to tell him a few things about Alice that he might not have guessed for himself, and indeed she had planned to find such an opportunity if she could, but this was getting to be altogether too much of one, she felt. As time passed she was like an actor who must improvise to keep the audience from perceiving that his fellow-players have missed their cues but her anxiety was not betrayed to the still listener. She had a valiant soul. Alice, meanwhile, had arranged her little roses on the table in as many ways, probably, as there were blossoms, and she was still at it when her father arrived in the dining-room by way of the back stairs and kitchen. "'It's pulled out again,' he said, "'but I guess there's no help for it now. It's too late, and anyway it lets in some air when it bulges. I can sit so's it won't be noticed much, I expect.' Isn't it time you quit bothering about the looks of the table? Your mother's been talking to him for about half an hour now, and I had the idea he came on your account, not hers. Hadn't you better go and—' "'Just a minute,' Alice said piteously. "'Do you think it looks all right?' "'The flowers? Fine. Hadn't you better leave them the way they are, though?' "'Just a minute,' she begged again. "'Just one minute, Papa.' And she exchanged a rose in front of Russell's plate, for one that seemed to her a little larger. "'You better come on,' Adam said, moving to the door. Just one more second, Papa. She shook her head, lamenting. Oh, I wish we'd rented some silver. Why? Because so much of the plating has rubbed off a lot of it. Just a second, Papa. And as she spoke, she hastily went round the table, gathering the knives and forks and spoons that she thought had their plating best preserved, and exchanging them for the more damaged pieces at Russell's place. There, she sighed finally. Now I'll come. But at the door she paused to look back dubiously over her shoulder. What's the matter now? The roses! I believe, after all, I shouldn't have tried that vine effect. I ought to have kept them in water in the vase. It's so hot they already begin to look a little wilted, out on the dry tablecloth like that. I believe I'll—' "'Well, look here, Alice,' he remonstrated, as she seemed disposed to turn back. "'Everything'll burn up on the stove if you keep on—' "'Oh, well,' she said. "'The vase was terribly ugly. I can't do any better. We'll go in.' But with her hand on the doorknob she paused. "'No, Papa, we mustn't go in by this door. It might look as if—' "'As if what?' "'Never mind,' she said. "'Let's go the other way.' "'I don't see what difference it makes,' he grumbled, but nevertheless followed her through the kitchen and up the back stairs, then through the upper hallway. At the top of the front stairs she paused for a moment, drawing a deep breath, and then, before her father's puzzled eyes, a transformation came over her. Her shoulders, like her eyelids, had been drooping, but now she threw her head back, the shoulders straightened and the lashes lifted over the sparkling eyes. Vivacity came to her whole body in a flash, and she tripped down the steps, with her pretty hands rising in time to the lilting little tune that she had begun to hum. At the foot of the stairs one of those pretty hands extended itself at full arm's length toward Russell, and continued to be extended until it reached his own hand as he came to meet her. "'How terrible of me!' she exclaimed, to be so late in coming down, and Papa, too. I think you know each other.' 
Her father was advancing toward the young man, expecting to shake hands with him, but Alice stood between them, and Russell, a little flushed, bowed to him gravely over her shoulder, without looking at him, whereupon Adams, slightly disconcerted, put his hands in his pockets and turned to his wife. "'I guess dinner's more than ready,' he said. "'We better go sit down.' But she shook her head at him fiercely. "'Wait!' she whispered. "'What for? For Walter?' "'No, he can't be coming,' she returned, hurriedly, and again warned him by a shake of her head. "'Be quiet!' "'Oh, well,' he muttered. "'Sit down!' He was thoroughly mystified, but obeyed her gesture, and went to the rocking-chair in the opposite corner, where he sat down, and, with an expression of meek inquiry, awaited events. Meanwhile Alice prattled on. "'It's really not a fault of mine, being tardy. The shameful truth is I was trying to hurry Papa. He's incorrigible. He stays so late at his terrible old factory.' terrible new factory, I should say. I hope you don't hate us for making you dine with us in such fearful weather. I'm nearly dying of the heat myself, so you have a fellow-sufferer, if that pleases you. Why is it we always bear things better if we think other people have to stand them too?" And she added, with an excited laugh, "'Silly of us, don't you think?' Gertrude had just made her entrance from the dining-room bearing a tray. She came slowly, with an air of resentment, and her skirt still needed adjusting, while her lower jaw moved at intervals, though now not upon any substance, but reminiscently, of habit. She halted before Adams, facing him. He looked plaintive. "'What do you want of me?' he asked. For response she extended the tray toward him with a gesture of indifference, but he still appeared to be puzzled. "'What in the world?' he began, then caught his wife's eye and had presence of mind enough to take a damp and plastic sandwich from the tray. "'Well, I'll try one,' he said. But a moment later, as he fulfilled this promise, an expression of intense dislike came into his features, and he would have returned the sandwich to Gertrude. However, as she had crossed the room to Mrs. Adams, he checked that gesture and sat helplessly with the sandwich in his hand. He made another effort to get rid of it as the waitress passed him on her way back to the dining-room, but she appeared not to observe him, and he continued to be troubled by it. Alice was a loyal daughter. "'These are delicious, mamma," she said and turning to Russell. You missed it. You should have taken one. It's too bad we couldn't have offered you what ought to go with it, of course, but— She was interrupted by the second entrance of Gertrude, who announced, Dinner served, and retired from view. Well, Adams said, rising from his chair with relief, that's good. Let's see if we can eat it. And as the little group moved toward the open door of the dining-room, he disposed of his sandwich by dropping it in the empty fireplace. Alice, glancing back over her shoulder, was the only one who saw it, and she shuddered in spite of herself. Then, seeing that he looked at her entreatingly, as if he wanted to explain that he was doing the best he could, she smiled upon him sunnily, and began to chatter to Russell again. End of chapter 21